namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sangkang namasami Uh, um, cultivation requires <clears throat> simple things, obvious things. Putting, having a seed, putting it in the in the in fertile soil, waiting a long time, patiently, applying the right kind of of uh, water, light, warmth waiting a long time and letting it letting it grow and supporting <coughs> the the teaching of the buddha is like a like a seed he said uh, that it was in some doubt as to whether to teach at all because it goes so much against the grain that it uh, at first it's even difficult to to uh, relate to what is being talked about. Suffering, maybe, one can relate to. I remember that I spent about my first two years as a, as a Buddhist monk without really being able to handle the teachings. I knew sit, walk, breathe in, breathe out. I knew some of the rules and so on. And that was about it. The rest of it was just uh, couldn't couldn't receive it. Mind just wasn't uh, prepared. Wasn't open. The soil hadn't been broken. Hadn't been tilled. <coughs> One could hear and, and intellectually understand, but it didn't resonate. For a start, so much of it seemed to be quite negative about detachment and non-attachment and non-becoming and, and non-existence and fading out and cessation and relinquishment and letting go and um, not permanent, not self, not satisfactory and you, uh, one's normal mode of perceiving and relating is, is, is well, what's the positive thing that you get? You know, what do you aim for? And this, uh, so this this is why it's a, a difficult one, because <coughs> it, it's a it's no mean uh, task that one applies oneself to. So uh, the the path leads towards emptiness, towards freedom. Freedom is when uh, when there isn't any thing to be held onto or grasped at or attained or or maintained. It's it's the it's that that release that we instinctively seek a kind of a liberated feeling, a feeling of being free from restriction and confinement and, and oppression. It's a very strong, is, is the strongest um, unsensory experience, the strongest spiritual inclination that we have. You have the powerful sense drives which are very much towards things, um, <coughs> sens sensory objects, <coughs> becoming, birth, procreation, um, physical survival, very powerful. And yet, uh, in all human beings, there's also, and also a very powerful spiritual, or, or it's not on a sensory plane anyway, it's a desire to be free from from trouble, free from worry, free from doubt, free from ignorance. And so often the, the uh, difficulties, one just doesn't know where to look for that, so we, we try to put the two together. We try to find freedom from sorrow, free from freedom from worry, freedom from discomfort by following the sensory desires, <coughs> by holding and having and, and getting and becoming 
because that's that's what we that's what we know that's the way we know how to operate. So this spiritual desire is often left rather un unorganized, confused, distracted. <coughs> but it's there. That's what you have to use to recognize, to trust. <coughs> That's not something that you have to believe in, or is imposed upon you, or you, you uh, it's, it's right there, it is the, the life force of the spirit, it's like that, there is that, we know that, and that's not about a religion, or a practice, or a teaching, or anything, you really can trust that, that have faith in that. The rest of it, is an offering that is, is offered and uh, just to, to, uh, to begin to realize that the, the first arising of faith is a recognition that the, the, our spiritual ambition or desire if you like that, that desire for freedom and peace and, and, and something beyond just the mundane is not going to be satisfied on the sensory plane is uh, the uh, faith arises from suffering or discontent or a feeling of, of alienation, realizing it's not going to work that way. We feel that. And so faith arises, which is a kind of, of being prepared to take a chance, gamble, try something out, uh, get be, go beyond one's habits. And this is the first of the, of the faculties, the spiritual faculties, the f- spiritual supports. <coughs> and there are five of these that you, you use to um, keep preparing, cultivating the ground of the mind uh, to make it ready to receive and be able to use and, and allow the seed of Dharma to, to sprout. Faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom. And this is almost like the four in the monastic life, this is the first meditation lesson. And you think, well, you know, what do you, where, where do you, where's that? You know, um, is it my... Because you know, you know, you've got this body, so you think, well, sit here. And then you want some sort of system or, or thing to do. And then, but the first meditation is this. Because it's, it's very important, primarily, to get the... to be able to find a means whereby you can keep in touch with the doingness of it, of the meditation, and you can keep measuring out the, the quality of application the what you do has got some teacher with you, your own teacher. And these five uh, faculties combine together to make a very helpful teacher. When they are all mature, you have a very strong practice. When, then you can notice whether one of them is absent or present. And we use uh, uh, conventional meditation techniques such as uh, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of breathing, as a way to develop these faculties, sustain these faculties, check out whether they're present or absent, and then most teachers and teachings will, will provide certain means to enhance one or, or uh, strengthen one or find a balance. <coughs> so you have devotional practices. <coughs> you have the um, the sense in which one makes a commitment to a teacher or a teaching. Like you, you become a disciple. And you say, well, I'll stay with this for one year, two years, five years, or whatever. But you make that kind of commitment. That means that you, you've gone beyond just, uh, that's an act of faith. Because you've gone beyond the normal, I'll do this for as long as I feel like it. Or, 
are because of some gratification system or because you're attracted to it but because you, you, you actually extend beyond that beyond where that can go you go through, in other words, you go through the ups and the downs the, the inspiration, the disillusionment, the boredom the restlessness and the, the, and the insights so that, that really helps to make that commitment um, gives you a way of developing faith and certainly when one practices a medit- even a meditation technique it's good to, to stay with it and work with it and keep going with it and just work out all of the, the various feelings you have about it whether, you're, whether it's good enough whether it's better than this or not as good as that and, and um, keep with that <coughs> you don't want to be always changing around but similarly, because of that, you, to make a commitment, you have to make it a reasonable act of faith. That is, you don't make a commitment to say, you know, a practice of standing on one leg stark naked in the snow for five years. You know, you have to make it something that, that is, is reasonable. Someone you feel, like with a teacher or a teaching, someone you feel manageably comfortable, you, you, you have a sense of faith arises, trust in that. And similarly with any, any religious practices you take, sometimes this uh, faith element goes overboard into, into just uh, blind belief, where you follow any old thing, because if it's powerful, if it's got charisma, if it's attractive, dazzling, if it takes away the, the need for personal responsibility, it just kind of blots out everything in a great surge of optimism, or, or believe me, this is the way. This this will work, and you just and, and you just follow blindly. So faith always has to be balanced out with the other one of the other faculties, which is reflection, wisdom. Which means you you look, hmm, yeah, well, what is this really like? There's always a, a one part, one eye, if you like, is going back inwards to what is this about? How am I doing? How's this affecting me? So we keep watching that, faith and wisdom, reflective wisdom. Am I getting strained, uptight? Am I just getting carried away? What is, what is actually the quality of the heart? The, uh, the motivation in my mind? Is my mind remaining clear? Or am I just uh, believing in something? It's like, uh, so the two have to go together. If you're always, if you develop the reflective ability too much, then you get into an endless doubt. Think, well, I don't know about this. I mean, you, you mean, you know, you've got to find out for yourself. You know, you've got to be your own teacher and guide. Therefore, you don't want to believe anything anybody tells you. This attitude, which is, you know, in 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 moderation, is is good. <coughs> but then you end up just believing in your own ideas and views, and, and that. If you reflect on that, you feel you can notice that doesn't feel so good because you end up always asserting yourself, having to prove yourself, having to defend yourself, having to convince everybody else. You become one of these um, <coughs> a zealot, you know, ideological zealot, where you you, you know you develop your own thing. Faith, you just, you just to- if you overdevelop that, then you just, well, you just uh, totally blindly believe something. But they both lead to a similar position, one of a kind of fanaticism. It's, it's an imbalance. When the two are together, there's a, there's a, a trust in, because you realize what, what actually is the quality uh, of trust, of faith. And it's a, it's a gentleness to trust something means you don't have to prove it anymore you, you feel calm by it you feel gladdened you feel somehow that what you're having faith in in fact mirrors the, the aspiration the spiritual aspiration towards freedom it actually reflects that for you so you have faith in something that gives you a, a kind of a sign a taste of the goal that in your heart you seek has a taste of freedom, it has a taste of joy, a taste of calm, peace and, and goodness about it. 
and then you can have faith in that. So with, with all um, systems, religions, beliefs and non-beliefs, <coughs> to don't believe anything, believe, or the <laughs> believe everything, believe, or any, any, of, the, any of the kind of th- positions one wants to take up between the two, you always want to keep this um, ability to, to keep relating things back to the, to the, 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 quali- the quality of feeling. It's like an intuitive quality. Don't, don't think about it too much. And so, um, making a commitment, having faith. And personally, I, I could realize that I, one thing I couldn't, one thing I knew was I, I couldn't believe my mind. I couldn't believe the thoughts of it anyway. Because I could think just about anything. And I could think and I could contradict it, I was clever enough to be able to affirm something and then contradict it in five minutes time. <coughs> like an example, we say, you know, uh, if you're in like, group practice, is it, or, or individual practice, just a simple thing like this, individual practice you can see as, as being self-reliant, practicing on your own, developing that quality of resilience and self-reliance and not just being a kind of someone who needs a whole whole thing to support them. Sounds good. Or you can say it as being someone who doesn't want to conform, someone who's just copying out of, of, uh, of fitting in, someone who's just out doing their own thing all the time. Group practice you can think of as either either giving oneself up for the welfare of the group, living in harmony, or or can't do it on your own, you need to be supported by a group of other people in order to do it. Both those sound pretty real they all sound pretty realistic to me. Because I realised that I couldn't personally I couldn't approach this path from thinking. The whole thing was just shot through. There was no no choice but to actually the act of faith, the commitment, became became the only thing to do because one thing I couldn't commit myself and have faith in was my own incredibly ingenious mind. <laughs> it got me as far as that to realise this this one is a it's a liar or it's it's a conjurer, um, pulling any, anything right out of the hat. So that I, I realised that, and then. Although I didn't find Buddhism particularly interesting and monasticism so wonderful, one thing I did like about it was I liked Buddhists. They were nice people. They were kind of cheerful, gentle, peaceful people. I liked them. There were kind of there was something nice about feeling of tolerance, easygoing, tolerant, cheerful uh, people, generous, loving people. That felt oh, something here. Couldn't understand the teachings at all. Anatta, not self. What is that? All this stuff about loathsomeness and all this negativity. But the people didn't look particularly loathsome or or, or non-self. They seemed to be quite bright and happy. And then I quite liked the the feeling of just living simply. I enjoyed that. Somehow that felt right to just not be encumbered by a whole load of stuff and be obsessed with all kinds of things, that felt good. So I, could, so I could trust that. And then going inward, contemplating the breath was calming. And that felt right. To just be able to, to step back in the mind and look at things, felt, that felt right. That felt like uh, a taste of freedom. So I got some sense of faith in, in, in meditation <coughs> and in, in living uh, a simple life restra- of, rest- of sense restraint and uh, Morality, and living in a, with a group of people, <coughs> and that's that's how I became a monk. It wasn't that. I, actually, my thinking mind, I used to break out in cold sweats at the idea of becoming a monk because I wasn't particularly into conventional religions at all. <coughs> I had a few unconventional uh, religions, but never mind. So that one, having made that, that kind of commitment, it gave a, a good basis for there to be to be energy because 
with that, then once you've actually defined where you're at and said, you know, you make that that commitment and you realize you're not going to follow your, just your thoughts and moods anymore, then that um, means you get a <coughs> a certain sense of of direction begins to emerge. You have to put energy into things because actually after a while you can't do the you can't do things because you enjoy them. You can't do things because they're fun. Because that that perception changes. You're doing some things that have made a commitment to a certain style or routine and of course it gets boring. Or you start to see all the flaws in it, all the faults in the teacher and all the things wrong in the place, and all the inadequacies of the, of the religion. Uh, it's after a few months with living in a Buddhist monastery, uh, Christianity started to look really quite, quite profound and interesting. <laughs> I was surprised how it suddenly <laughs> started to shine. It's really good, those neat robes they wear, thick, wool, warm, woolly robes, and eating in the evening, you know. It's quite a sensible thing to do and chanting and singing, the lovely singing they do, and stained glass and all those kinds of things, really quite attractive, rather than being living in a wooden box, sweating in, 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 a, in a foreign country. So, of course, when they want to have to, the, the energy that comes up, because you feel your mind starts to go into this whimpering, complaining, Attitude. I don't really want to bother with this. I don't like that. I don't want this, and so on. You see all the things wrong. So energy then has to come not from from conviction, but from the effort to actually to start to realise the the power of the of the defilements of the mind. When you've actually made that stand, then the defilements come up. All the things that want you to go this way, want you to go that way, and say, don't do it this way, do it that way, and it's better like this, and there's no need for that, all of this stuff. And when you start to, to resist that, or stand against it, then it screams pretty loud. It, it, it screams a lot. So the, the energy that you have, the effort that you have, is really about just holding, holding still, sustaining that practice, you know, your simple mindfulness of breathing, walking, the simplicity of the day, through all of the, you're not doing enough, you should be doing more, what about the third world, what about the second world, what about, you know, this, that, and that, and this, and so on. You know, the nagging of the mind, and the, and the self-criticisms. You did this wrong, you, you know, you're not doing it hard enough, you're not doing it good enough, you're not bright enough, cheerful enough good enough, compassionate enough, wise enough, strong enough, <laughs> going on. So, the effort. And then, you know, that one tries, of course, at first, uh, you, you get the idea of mindfulness and watchfulness, but you want to actually watch. You want to be able to watch this meditation object. You've got this mindfulness of breathing thing going, and so you're right in and out, got that one going. And I found I could do it really well for a while, <coughs> for a few weeks or a, few, or a month or so. It was really quite good. And then it started to, it wasn't interesting anymore. I mean, there wasn't anything else to do where I was at. So you had about 16 hours of this. There wasn't anything else to do. Nowhere to go. You didn't go out anywhere. There wasn't anybody to talk to. There wasn't anything to, to see or touch or taste or read. So you think <laughs> and feel and remember and fantasize. And, and then you, you, one feels, well, you're trying to be more mindful of this, this breath. And actually it's getting worse. It's not getting better. Practice seems to be getting worse. But... Um, this is like a, a test of, of, uh, of mindfulness and, and based on faith and energy. That you begin to apply energy to, to, either to keep going back to the breath or to just sustaining attention when you can't even reach the breath. And sometimes you just have to 
there are, after all, four foundations of mindfulness, which is, uh, uh, oh, well, mindfulness of the greedy mind. Yep, I can do that. <laughs> can I be aware of that one? I don't want to be aware of it. I want to be aware of the bright, happy, positive, joyous mind. But it says here that he knows the, the, the craving, lustful mind as this way. Oh, yes, I know that one. And so your mindfulness becomes much more fluid and, and, and flowing. And this is quite uh, um, difficult because normally, of course, one, one expects that we base our attention and our attitudes upon things, not upon, not upon um, a quality of, of attitude. We base it upon, are you, have you got this or have you not got it? Not, not um, how are you responding to what's happening to you. And this is the, the strange lightness and fluidity of the Buddhist path that you begin to see in people who practice it. A sense in which they don't have any real fixed position. It could be this way. Or, okay, well if you want it that way, well, we could shift that way. And sometimes it's like this, and sometimes it's like that. And particularly in a Buddhist country, it's quite aggravating for Westerners because nothing is ever that definite. In Thailand, the, the phrase they use is, often is minor, which means uncertain. It changes, uncertain. They say, how many monks have you got here in the monastery? They say, oh, minor, don't know. It changes. And then, what time is this going to happen? Time? Oh, later on. <laughs> and if you get really indignant, they give you a time. They say, oh, three o'clock, <laughs> just, just to make you happy. In fact, it, it means sometime between one and nine. But they think, oh, he's getting annoyed, so they say, okay, we'll give him a time to make him happy. So they say, three o'clock. <laughs> and then, of course, when three o'clock comes around, it, then you, nothing happens, and you're starting to get indignant, they look surprised. As if, you know, oh, well, three o'clock meant, you know, you know, sort of roundabout, give or take four or five hours. They don't expect you to actually take these things literally. It's just be aware and notice and, and, and just pick it up. And particularly um, living, living in, 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 uh, in monasteries in Thailand, often a lot of things are not really explained. You just have to figure it out. You have to know. Like um, in later when I've been to other monasteries, particularly not speaking Thai particularly, you just have to know where, where, when, and where to go out for arms round. They don't say, "Be at this time at half, be at this place at half past four. You just know that when it starts to get light, grab your bowl and start looking, look around, find out where everybody else is, and get over there. And, if it, and, and you better be prepared to give up walking slow if you want to get fed. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to grab your bowl and scoot. So that, that kind of fluidity, sometimes it's fast, sometimes it's slow. Sometimes it's nothing. You, you know, often the experience was one of, of rushing to get somewhere. You get somewhere and then you wait for three hours. And then suddenly everything happens all at once and then there's a whole lull and nothing happens again. And you get this kind of stop. Nothing's organized. And this is actually very good for, for mindfulness. Terribly frustrating also, because you, you, you so want to pin upon a thing, an event, and a something, rather than to be aware, just keep the mind clear and bright and notice, respond to the moment. But to get the feeling for this is very helpful. Whenever, as in the... As in the, the Satipatthana Sutta that I was touching on the other day, you've got these four foundations. It doesn't work like that. I mean, that's just the way to describe it. You can't, if you're writing, a, if you're explaining something sequentially in these categories, then it, that's the way to explain it. But you can't say, well, first of all, there'll just be breathing and nothing else. You know, there won't be any mind objects for a little while. We'll deal with that later. You know, for the first few months, they'll just be breathing, won't have any kind of fear or greed or hatred or worry. That won't happen. We'll deal with that uh, next season, next semester, we'll deal with those things. No, when you, 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 you practice, you get all four foundations 
jumbled in on top of each other, and you have to learn how to how to weave and move and change. So you can't really pin your meditation exactly upon a particular object. I mean, you can use something as a base, like the breathing is a very good base. Partly because it's not, it's subtle enough to mean that you can't very really well hold it. It's very difficult to hold to the breath, if you've noticed. <laughs> and you think, oh, why can't it something like, a, you know, it was a drum beat or... In fact, you can, you can strengthen it with a mantra, for example, or counting. That helps. But essentially, the, the breath is a kind of subtle sign. So that means you can't really just uh, block out everything else. You have to actually start to witness within the breath the moods of the mind, the changes of the mind states that operate. And for, for when one is expecting to be able to mindfulness being just, you know, do this thing and then you will get it. That kind of system is too simplistic. It means you incline towards this and then use that as a foundation for uh, attentiveness, awareness, and then start to use that awareness with what happens, with what, what comes up. I mean, this is what seems to be the way it is. So I found myself that after some period of meditation, the meditation as a formal practice got very bad. Dullness, drowsiness, because one lost interest in it. You just can't sustain interest in any one thing for that long. <clears throat> so then you have to learn to, to, to respond to the hindrances the five hindrances, and then we come into the fourth Satipatthana, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. You know, the contemplation of Dhammas, or mind objects, or Dhammas. And what is the what is Dhamma? Think, oh, this sounds. This might be the you know the contemplation of the of the Dhamma. Where does it begin? Where does it begin? Five hindrances. Welcome. <laughs> you know. Sense desire, ill will. <coughs> Dullness. Restlessness and worry and doubt. This is your first, uh, your first uh, experience of the contemplation of the Dhamma. So when, you, 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 when this starts to happen, you can know you're right on course. Nothing is going wrong. These five hindrances are there to, to they're like worthy, worthy uh, sparring partners. It will actually make you strong and fit and limber. You have to learn how to duck and weave and develop some skillful means with these five. So, and it's from handling these that 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 you get concentration or samadhi really comes from having practiced mindfulness cultivated with these around these if the path is mindfulness concentration, wisdom which is the way these faculties develop and how the Eightfold Path is explained then your concentration or that samadhi has to come not before mindfulness but after it doesn't it I mean, there's a certain application which we call effort and energy. But then the real unification of the mind comes from having understood and worked with and become and learnt from the five hindrances. Now, most of us would, (coughs) just working on our normal instinctive patterns, just want to stop these and not have them. It's a disaster when these happen. So sense desire, oh no. And then, uh, you know, maybe you fight with it or you play with it for a while and then you suppress it. Play for it for a while and you feel a bit guilty. Then it's kind of fun. Then you, you play with it for a little longer. Then you, you think, well, maybe this isn't so good. So you, you kind of cut it out. And then you think, oh, well, if I just, if I just follow it just this once, then that will kind of got rid of it. And then I'll have, this is called burning out karma, they call that. 
there's a nice way of putting it. See, you fancy you fancy a, a drink, so you think I'll burn out some karma. That's what I'll do. I'll go and I'll I'll just do it just this once, and that will have kind of finished with that that kind of desire. I'll be mindful of it and become by that way I'll become kind of like I'll have worked it out of my system. So you go down and you have a few Johnny Walkers and a couple of bourbons to polish it off and end up flat on the floor. And <laughs> then you start again and, and so on. And of course the same thing happens again. So this uh, sense desire is not to be followed. You don't get rid of it like that. You can't just gratify it nor can you just suppress it. You have to actually, part of the, 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 the skill of mindfulness, you have to be quite humble. It means you can't just use power to say, stop it, nor can you say, oh well, and just give up. The middle way, unfortunately, or fortunately, is somewhere between those two, between indulgence and rejection. To actually watch and open to the movement of desire, without believing in it. Just notice the images, the feelings that come up, the impulse, the heat, the attractiveness. And this training oneself to keep the mind very still and detached. Detachment and dispassion is mindfulness. And the more that one, one practices, first of all, detachment, to just look at a desire as that much, and then dispassion, which means we no longer feel ashamed of it or fascinated by it. You look at the, the tendency to really like be excited by desires. Sexual desire is quite exciting feeling. You know, or, or things like you could go somewhere, couldn't you? You can go for a, down to Florida right now and it'd be really nice and better than up here. Exciting, isn't it, to have desires? And little pictures and they're all lies, aren't they? Because whenever you follow them, you get to the other place, you do the thing you wanted to do, and it's, oh well, now what? So that wisdom element is there at work also with, 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 that, you know, with that understanding of desire. You begin to recognize anything outside of this moment is just a fantasy that is ephemeral. And you relate that back to your, your, your uh, spiritual aspiration. It's to be free, isn't it? And you only really start this path because in some way you're a bit weary of all the running around. And you realize it doesn't get you anywhere. So something in you wants to get beyond that. Then also the faith is very helpful because you, having taken refuge you begin to recognize, although you have to deal with, with desires, craving and so on, that your intention is quite pure and strong. That, that you, one should never feel ashamed of oneself. I feel this very, very much you know, as a monk. It's a, it's a powerful exhortation to practice when you're living on alms food, when you're supported something in you is, is very much uh, primed to, to, to say you're not good enough. You're supposed, to be, you're supposed to be worthy of this. Which is good, actually. But you can take it too far. I remember going out on arms round in the mornings with it, when you, you hadn't eaten for, the, well, since the previous day, and then you go out at four and you, with an empty bowl and you see people giving food away on the street and you feel this, this real craving to get some food, and you have to hold yourself back and be very restrained. And you go through a whole arms round like that for about two hours. Your bowl is actually overflowing with food. So you, by the time you get back, you're utterly sick of the whole thing altogether. And then we'd have to give all our food up, and then we'd be then we'd we'd uh, left with nothing again. So you go back to the to the emptiness hunger situation, and then they bring some food around, which was always rather inferior, but at least it was something to eat, and you feel this incredible desire for that. 
So you go through the whole run of, of desire, boredom, irritation, uh, more desire, then more irritation again, and then a, a feeling of, of, oh, why do I have to go through this whole wearisome process every day? <coughs> but then this uh, sense desire, and then ill will, irritation, aversion. You see, you, you actually, when one has faith uh, uh, in the path, and you begin to realize that all the Buddhas and the arahants and the masters and the sages all had to work with ill will and sense desire. There's nothing personal about it. Then this is, this is your path. This is the contemplation of Dhamma. So you have to go through it. There's nothing going wrong. You have to go through it and learn what you can from it. And you begin to learn about the very, very fundamental human natural qualities of aversion and, and uh, craving, desire for and desire against. And once you've learned from these on simple sense objects, then you begin to understand that movement of the mind which inclines away from the here and now into something else. And it's always ignorant. It's always a delusion. It's always painful. You find like you find really yourself really interested in food, and then you know when you get it, that and you the the contentment lasts. The the moment of gratification with desire is just that, isn't it? Just one one <laughs> ecstatic moment of gratification. Then the whole thing is just so what? I mean, it's kind of run run down. Sexual, sexual gratification, oral gratification, it's just like that, isn't it? Just there's a purely, if you just follow the physical impulse and there's nothing more in that, that's, what, that's as long as it lasts, just one finger snap, and there's the feeling of, it's all kind of nothing. Like if you're eating your food, and you're really hungry, and you get the first mouthful, and it's, wow. Thank goodness. And then how long does it take before you actually your mind wanders off it because it's so boring having to keep chewing this stuff and slopping it down? How long does it take before the fantastic and the wonderful becomes the dull and mundane? You even get averse to it. You have to eat this stuff again. Another. So most, mostly we have to keep kind of spicing things up, making things special, tarting them up, decorating them, frilling them up, and teasing and tempting ourselves, because if we didn't, you you find out how boring it all is. (laughs) But then, then, so one can get very irritated by it, but you learn, it's not, there's no point in being irritated by it. The the problem is this illusion of, of gratification. And then if we were able to receive the sensory world and use it for attention, it does that. This is the way you use it for meditation. You can't, it's not to be averse to the sensory world, it's just a a nuisance in the way or something that's always stirring me up or something that's painful or unpleasant. But you use pleasure and pain Sense objects, sight, sound, touch, taste, as things that wake you up. They are excellent for making you attentive. The sensory world brings us to attention. We can notice it. We can distinctly discern it. When you have greed or fear or you see something or hear something, you really notice it. And so therefore you can use it as a base for meditation, (coughs) for mindfulness requires faith, a sense of, okay, we'll use this one. We'll use the form of desire, or the, like the idea of going to, to Florida, or of a banana, or of, or of any old thing, or of the feeling in my knee, and just focus the mind on it, and look at what all of the play around that. Be mindful, be aware of the feelings, the perceptions, the moods, as changing as that which comes and goes 
and are ephemeral, transient, relative. They're not permanent, they're not absolute truths, none of it. It all depends on how much you are believing in desire or believing in aversion. Enlightenment is the ultimate disbelief. <coughs> so we don't have to reject it then, we can notice it. And the mind remains still, detached, dispassionate. And then those with that, it's like you, you've passed the test. Those things then start to ease away and they don't come back. Or they come back in subtler forms. But you've begun to understand. And some of that powerful passion and irritation it dies away when you no longer react to it and follow it. Then uh, the, so you can deal with sense desire irritation, also ill will, which you can get a lot of in meditation. Around, I've found myself being so cranky and irritable around things that were getting in my way or a nuisance, people not turning up on time, food not turning up on time. Things not working, irritated with myself, so annoyed with my stupid mind. And that you can do that here. <coughs> irritated with the people around you, people not turning up, people being late, people doing things wrong, people forgetting things and so on. Going for the meal, you get behind a slow walker when you're going for the meal. You know, somebody's walking real slow and then you're... You This is supposed to be being mindful. What's the mindfulness in this? You know, kind of thing. Somebody's kind of very mindfully opening the door. And you want to go to the, you want to go to the bathroom, and somebody's being mindful opening the door and walking through it super mindfully, and you're <laughs> <laughs> you find yourself extreme irritation welling up. But it's not to, to say who's being mindful or who's not being mindful, but to be mindful of what's happening. Uh, that, that feeling then is something you have to work with. Isn't it? Life is like that. You can't expect the whole world is going to cooperate with your particular moods and feelings. Dullness is like when you, something in you doesn't want to play anymore. You don't want to be bothered. You don't want to have to make the effort. You don't just kind of maybe sit back and let, if things are going to rise and pass away, let them get on and do it. <laughs> don't bother me. <laughs> I'm fed up with this show, you know. Because when, when you realize that you can't grasp anything and get rid of anything anymore, then a whole lot of the, the primary energy systems of the mind just are, are deactivated. There's nothing to get and nothing to get rid of. Then you, you sort of sink back into an inert blob, you know. Oh well, I suppose it would just take care of itself and um, go ahead and do it. And you just get dull and unwilling. You can't be bothered to do things. <coughs> I mentioned yesterday some just some simple meditation techniques, maybe like of of, of uh, putting more en- effort and energy into into the way one sits and holds one's body, keeps one's eyes open, but. It's more profound than that because actually sometimes you can't be bothered to do that. <laughs> and dullness really starts to corrode the faith and the attitude, the energy that you have because you think, well, so what, you know. I mean, I could do that, but it's kind of painful just sitting there sort of holding myself up and eyes open, feeling this. I still don't feel wonderful. If I just had a little nap, it'd be much easier you know, when I feel better, more like it. So I found that the most helpful thing for that really was, was being, having to, to do things more carefully, everything. And particularly, for if one of the advantages one found living in a monastery was that, that there was a great emphasis on taking care of everything you had. You couldn't just dump your robes down at the end of the day, oh well, that's it, dump them on the floor. You know, no, no, you can't do that. You have to fold them carefully. Any little holes, you have to fix them before dawn. Otherwise, you, otherwise your robes are forfeit, they take them away, and you have to go and ask for them back, go through some ridiculous, pointless, frustrating ceremony to get your, your, your robe back. 
<laughs> so the, the Buddha was, he obviously understood human nature. So if he, you know, you've got to put forth the effort to little things you don't want to bother with. The robe, the way you look after your arms bowl, a certain way you do it. And you, you've got to wash it in a certain way and dry it in a certain way and store it somewhere. You can't just, like a, like a, a dish or a plate, just kind of put it in a dishwasher, drag it out and dump it on the side. Well, no, 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 no. You have to hold it in a certain way, wash it in a certain way, dry it in a certain way, store it in a certain way, walk in a certain way, sit in a certain way, talk at a certain time, not at this time, not in that way, and so on. And uh, you can, of course, just feel irritated by all this, but if one starts to realize, well, you know, this is something that's being presented as an aspect of the practice, and then you find, I found actually it was quite joyous when I started to, to, to be able to use it, because it gave me some, when my mind was a complete miserable mess, then to be able to put attention into, into cleaning my arms bowl, I found pleasant, actually. Just to not be to stuck into this morass of, of, of dreariness and negativity, to actually put forth the effort around something I could do, carefully. I could clean my arms bowl. I could put my robes on straight. I could go through a door gently and carefully. I could put my, shoe, my sandals in the right place. It didn't require a profound attainment to do that. And just that, having to put forth subtle, caring, sensitive energy to what was suitable in terms of time and place really helped to make the mind more willing and less whinging and negative and can't be bothered. It eliminated that can't be bothered attitude. And that, that really meant that the mind began to have a, a constant state of, of energy that wasn't fiercely driving and then stalling and cutting out and going into reverse, but it was actually constantly like on tick over, purring. And when the energy sign becomes a, a, a steady, constant quality, it's like having, a, like having a song in your heart all the time. There's a quiet joy in the mind when there's, when there's energy, when you get past doubt, a, a dullness and that, and that laziness of mind. Restlessness, <clears throat> worry, worry and restlessness, or worry and flurry as it goes. It's not just physical restlessness, it's the, it's the, of when you get bored. What should I do? You find yourself actually physically shifting around and moving around, and then you want to go places, and you know where to go, so you sit, and then you your mind, if you kind of hold your body down, your mind is still going <laughs> like a windmill. And then the rest of that you have to be just very, very, you have to be very patient with it. Just like, to not even want to stop it. You know, just to listen to it, like you're listening to a, 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 a child t- tugging at your sleeve constantly while you're trying to do something. You're trying to draw a picture and a t- child is constantly tugging at your sleeve. Daddy, Daddy, I want... Well, Daddy, why is this? Why is this, Daddy? Why is that? Who did this? Why is that? You say, shut up, kid. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be t- endlessly patient. To like, so each, each time, it's like you make each time like the first time. You're responding to the, to the sound and the movements and the impulses in the mind as if each moment is the first one. You have to be that kind of patient, which is not the patience of just sullen endurance, but the patience that comes from taking, letting go and not having any time, just dismissing the idea of time altogether. To live in timelessness is freedom. So you have to have all the time in the world to be with the nagging mind, as if it's something you just really... Dying to hear. <laughs> the restlessness is something you just love to feel, that, that really nice feeling. <laughs> to be, have that, that, you have to really change your perceptions around it. Be very patient and humble. 
and not expect to be anything at all. So I find like with, so with walking meditation, just walking up and down, plod, 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 What's the point of this? This isn't being mindful, this isn't about meditation, just wasting my time walking up and down here. And you worry, worrying about whether you're doing it right and whether this is the right and that's right and it should be and it could be and all this. Uh, worry is a very strong problem for people. And you think, what do they really think of me? I wouldn't say anything that was offensive. I bet I did, did I? I worry and then doubt. Because when you start, when the hindrances take over, then you think, I, I don't know if this is really doing me any good, you know. I mean, I was sane before I came here. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize that life was unsatisfactory until I became a Buddhist. I started <laughs> meditating. <laughs> I really got depressed. So you think there's a reasonable, there's plenty of room for doubt. Am I doing the right thing? But then, the, it certainly, you know, you, 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 one has every reason to doubt. But for, so that you're taking refuge, you're making the refuge is, is the, is the, is the uh, sign. Can you watch it? Can you notice that? Can you notice the doubt in your mind? Can you listen to it? Oh yeah, I can notice it, I'm down. Okay, well that, that's good enough then, isn't it? Because that's, that's all that's asked. It's not that you don't have doubts, not that you believe in everything and feel wonderfully cheerful, this is the greatest, the one and only for me, but that you leave, you've got enough, because it's not to become convinced by Buddhism, but to be able to watch doubt and the tendency to want to believe in something and the sense of doubt and uncertainty that arises when you can't believe in anything anymore. Because this is not about belief, it's the ultimate disbelief. And it throws you right back. What is there then? When you can't believe in the standards, and you can't believe in yourself, and you can't believe in somebody else, and you can't believe in the practice, and you can't believe in the teaching. Where do you go? And then you're here, aren't you? And there's that doubt and that feeling. And you can notice it. Can you notice it? Then this is the you you then you come back to the refuge and in fact it's the only thing that's left is the refuge. You can't believe in thought. You can't believe in in silence. But you begin to to trust the knowing because the knowing is always there. You can always you can contemplate doubt. You can recognize it. You can know when it's there. You can notice it, it arising. You can notice it's when it's not there. You can notice the belief. You can notice the restlessness and the cessation of that and the greed and when it's not there. And you can notice these things as arising, passing away, existent, non-existent. And then you, you've found something, you've, you've realized, you've remembered something that was always there, but you tended to lose because you, you got so caught up in phenomena in passing, changing experiences, that for a while, your vision got kind of blurred. So like the refuge gets stronger, you come back, and this is when your concentration begins to arise, because then you have a feeling of, of concentration, (coughs) which is like a coming together of the power of attention, the power of focusing, and the power of listening, the power of of awareness. Attention and awareness coming together is is a concentration. Or you can say mind and heart brought together. 
and it's concentration that is available rather than dependent upon particular things. It means that whatever you do, you can do wholeheartedly. Think of it like that, concentration as being wholeheartedness.